Our reading this morning is from Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He travelled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms round him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. Morning, everybody. Thank you, Chris, very much. Uh, and if you've got a Bible with you um, on your phone or somewhere, do keep uh, Acts 20 in front of you for a few minutes. Um, about 20 years ago, um, Claire and I uh, went to visit a church um, somewhere near Peterborough. Uh, and we were there to speak a little bit about um, some mission work that we were involved in. And I was the preacher for the morning. Uh, it was a church, it didn't meet in a building like this one. Um, it was a church that met in a school hall. And so um, I, I hadn't done very much pre preaching at that stage, to be honest. It was one of my relatively early sermons. And I'd, I'd stood up on the stage. It was quite a wide building. And I, I'd only been speaking for maybe a, a two or three minutes when I became aware that there was a sound of snoring coming from someone somewhere over to my right. Um, I'd probably be all right with that these days, to be honest. I've preached enough sermons to know that some are better than others, and it, you know, it, it could happen. But I, was, I found it very hard to concentrate as this snoring got louder and louder and continued for several minutes through my sermon. Because it was such a wide building and I was on a stage, what I couldn't see was the snoring was coming from a carry cot, and there was this baby in church who just snored like a man. <laughs> um, and he, he obviously wasn't interested in what I had to say. In my curacy church, um, at the early service, um, there was a man, he was one of my neighbours actually, who um, 
on a regular basis would fall asleep two or three minutes into the sermon. He's sitting about where Chris is sitting today, actually. And the first couple of times he did it to me, I was quite put off uh, because he'd sort of fold his arms, his eyes would droop, and his mouth would open slightly. I soon learned, though, that you know, he would do this regardless of who was preaching, and it wasn't anything personal. Um, but Eutychus, that uh, we find here in Acts 20, you know, the character in the Bible um, who puts dread in the heart of preachers. How do, you, how do you preach a sermon on a guy who fell asleep and indeed out of a window during a particularly long talk without looking around at the congregation and thinking, are they still with me? Have I lost them? At least none of you will fall from a height if you have that experience today. And we will come to Eutychus in just a minute. Um, but first of all, um, let's just backtrack slightly. We, we're returning to the book of Acts this morning um, after our, our interlude in the park last week. And uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be in these last few chapters of the book of Acts, which we have been reading. Um, Paul is setting out, um, well, initially from Ephesus, um, but his vision is to get to Jerusalem uh, and then finally to Rome. And we might say that the, the theme for these chapters is Paul's defense of the gospel. He's defending the gospel. Now, that's not to say that Jesus can't stand up for himself or that he needs protecting in some way or that his message, if Paul doesn't take care of it, something bad is going to happen. But Paul's defenses, and he calls it that in chapter 22, are about explaining to people and reasoning with people um, as to why what Jesus has done is good news for all of them and for us too. And so we'll see him speaking to, to a quite aggressive crowd in Jerusalem in a couple of weeks, um, speaking to different Roman governors, uh, to King Agrippa, and e eventually he'll be sent off to Rome to appear before Caesar himself. Uh, and sometimes his defense will be legal. It's about showing that Christianity is not breaking any of the laws of the land. Um, sometimes uh, it's more political, demonstrating that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. So it's not about being a threat to Caesar or any of these other rulers. Sometimes what he's got to say is more theological, um, showing that following Jesus is consistent with what the scriptures say. And sometimes it's personal, as he just wants to explain to, to everyone why following Jesus is good for you whoever you are. And so today's passage is a bit of a linking section into that, really. It's one of those bits of the Bible we could very easily skip over to get to the good stuff later on. But we shouldn't miss what these opening chapters have to say to us. Um, in particular, as we see the example of these early believers and the way in which they are led by the Lord. And first of all, we see a group of committed leaders taking all the available opportunities to encourage God's people with God's word. That's verses 1 to 6, the bit with all the difficult words to pronounce that Chris did such a fine job with a moment ago. Um, there's been a riot, um, if you remember, from a couple of weeks ago. And after the riot, Paul and his colleagues wisely wait until the uproar has died down a bit before moving on. And most of these verses are telling us all about their travel plans. And we might wonder why this is in the Bible. Um, Paul sets out for Macedonia. Uh, we see a couple of verses later, he almost sails to Syria. And then it seems more sensible for him to travel by land back through Macedonia. And there's a whole bunch of people here with him from some of the churches he's planted. And one of them seems to be Luke himself, who wrote the book of Acts, which is why he says we there in verse 6. Why does Luke tell us all this stuff? Well, several things. Um, first of all, 
I think it's just part of what Luke does in both his Gospel and Acts, the two books that he wrote in the New Testament. If you uh, know how Luke's Gospel starts, and you might like to look back later at the opening four verses of Luke's Gospel, Luke tells us that his aim is to draw up a careful, organized, eyewitness account of all the things that Jesus did and all the things that were done in his name. And Luke says in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, he does it so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. These things about Jesus and his message. Uh, Luke wants us to be confident that what he says is true. And so one of the things he does repeatedly in his gospel and in Acts is he, he gives extra information. He gives us geographical details and historical details, things which kind of make us say, okay, it was there, it was then. This stuff really happened. Because people say all kinds of things about the Bible, don't they? Um, what do your friends, um, maybe members of your family, think about the Bible? Some people say, well, it's just a bunch of fairy stories, really, isn't it? It's not really based in fact, surely. Luke says, look, you might not believe in Jesus, but you're going to have to come up with a better argument than that to dismiss who he is and what he did. So that's one thing that's going on here. Secondly, and I think this is really helpful for us at this time, there is something here about how we make plans, both as individual people who are following the Lord and also as a church. Um, sometimes I've heard it said by Christians that we shouldn't make plans too carefully, really. We should just go with the flow and be guided by the Holy Spirit and see where he leads us. Um, other times I've found Christians so doggedly sticking to what they're convinced the Lord wants them to do, uh, despite all the evidence they might be wise to change their mind at this point. I don't know which of those two camps you might be in danger of finding yourself in. Because Paul's approach is neither of these two extremes, is it? Um, he's got his route planned. He, he's got his, his vision for where he wants to be. He wants to get to Jerusalem, in particular to deliver a gift for the churches there who are struggling. And then he wants to go to Rome to defend the gospel at the heart of the empire. And it's likely, though Luke doesn't mention it, that during these weeks and months covered by these verses that Paul is writing to the Romans, his famous letter in preparation for going there. But within those big things, he's ready to be flexible, isn't he? In verse 1, he's not daft. It's time to lay low for a while while the fuss dies down. In verse 3, there seems there's some kind of plot against him and his friends. And it would be unwise to sail straight for Syria and then Jerusalem. Okay, well, that opens other possibilities, doesn't it? There's another route he can take, which will give him the chance to go to Philippi and Troas on the way. So he does that. I think there's a lesson for us here that it's good to make plans, but it's also good to hold them lightly, recognizing that we need to be ready to be guided by God in his timing and in his ways. And you know what? Haven't we seen this ourselves over the last couple of years? And we've seen it in general. We've really seen it as a church and as a resourcing church with the plans that we've got, all kinds of things that we thought we might be doing in the last 18 months, we've not done. And we've, we've ended up focusing on very different things because of what's been happening in the world. doesn't mean that our calling as a church to be a blessing to our community, to be a planting church, and all of those things has gone, but it means that, look, in these circumstances, we just need to be ready to be flexible. Now, our Hub Cafe project which we've been talking about for years and at times have been so frustrated by how long it's taken for some of the details to be worked out. But in many ways, also, what a blessing it's been not to have been trying to launch a new cafe just when everything was locking down. 
should be a, a humbling lesson for us that, that God is in control. And perhaps even more so, our commitment to, to plant churches. You know, at the beginning of 2018, we'd had various prayer meetings and we'd identified various places where we might possibly be able to plant. And most of those doors have not opened over the last couple of years. You know, for, for various reasons, new housing developments haven't been built yet. Venues haven't become available. Until about a year and a half ago, we were invited to, to consider planting in Thermiston by the bishop. We've been encouraged to do so by the local vicar, and it seems there's a, a venue for a congregation just waiting to be used. That's why we've appointed Steve and Sarah, who are over at Houghton this morning. It's not what I would have predicted, but I think we can sense the Spirit's leading in that. And there's a lesson for us about how we make our plans, but always seek to be guided by God. And then finally in these opening verses, as these plans unfold and change, what does Paul do? He takes the opportunity to encourage his fellow believers, doesn't he? Verse 1, Paul sent for the disciples and he encouraged them. Verse 2, he traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people. That is what he is all about. That is his priority. Um, we don't know what the future holds. If we haven't learned that from the last 18 months, then I don't know what we have learned. Um, we don't know how things will pan out. We don't know exactly what God has got in store. And by God's grace, he'll enable us to plant and the hub will move towards opening. But, you know, those are small things. We certainly don't know what's going to happen with COVID and in the aftermath of Brexit and in the general instability there seems to be in the world today. But whatever happens there will be opportunities to encourage one another and to point people to what Jesus has done. That was Paul's number one priority, and it needs to be ours too as we live together as his people. That's the first half of our passage. And then secondly, um, particularly in verses 7 to 12, they arrive in Troas, and we find committed believers. And they're also seizing the opportunity, this time, to be encouraged by hearing the word of God from Paul and his friends. Um, back to verse 7. On the first day of the week, Sunday, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him and said, Don't be alarmed. He's alive. Then he went upstairs and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. Now, many people hear this story. And what do they think? Well, Paul, he goes on a bit, doesn't he? I thought Rob can talk a lot, but that's nothing. Uh, we don't know what time he started, of course. It might have been quite late, but he certainly carries on until midnight initially. And, and after he's literally preached Eutychus to death, it seems, he raises him again and gives him some more. What's the message? Well, surely it's that preachers should not go on for too long and listeners should care enough about God's word not to doze off. No, I don't think that's, that's the message here at all. I don't think that's really what this is about. Let's just reflect on, on what's going on here. It's Sunday. It's the first day of the week. It's the day when, when the risen Christ made a point of meeting with his disciples on several occasions to encourage them and to speak to them. 
So there's something here about the importance placed on meeting together on the Lord's Day, which is what we're doing, isn't it? It's what we've been prevented from doing for so long. Um, we don't know exactly who was there in that room, but the early believers came from a, a whole variety of backgrounds. Some of them were probably even slaves. In fact, Eutychus is known to have been a name that is sometimes used for slaves in the Roman world, so maybe that includes the lad on the windowsill. For people like that and for many others, Sunday was a working day. And the only two times they could meet for worship on the Lord's Day were either really early in the morning, before the sun rose probably, or late at night after a full day at work. There was no Sunday off in the Roman Empire. And so I think one of the things that actually when we look at this we get is a, is a reminder of the commitment of these early Christians to one another, to meeting, to being together on a Sunday. And this Sunday they've got Paul and his team of church planting apostles. They're not going to miss the opportunity to be taught by them. And so I don't think it really is that Paul is boring, because he's not, is he? Whatever you think of him, he's not normally boring. And I don't think it's that Eutychus is particularly dopey either. Uh, More likely is that what we've got here is a group of committed believers, serious about their faith, with a one-off opportunity to hear from someone who is unique uh, and has such a fruitful ministry before he moves on to the next place. And they want to make the most of that. They don't want to miss out. And so they meet when they can, which may be meant late on a working day when some of them are already pretty shattered from a hard day of physical work in a hot room with aromatic lamps burning, as we're told there in the passage. But not missing the opportunity is enough for them to be there. So I don't think this is about criticizing Paul for his sermon length or Eutychus for his lack of attentiveness. He's tired. Eventually he succumbs. But first of all, there's a challenge by the level of commitment to growing in faith of everyone there. Um, Eutychus, yes, can't stay awake eventually. And this bit is pretty dramatic, isn't it? But after he's restored, it's not that they all kind of say, okay, well, we should probably knock it on the head then. We'll probably call it a night and head off. No, we want to make sure we've got the most out of this. And so they keep on going until dawn. It's like a a 24-7 night of prayer and worship and learning from God's word, isn't it? And I imagine the church in Troas remembered this and kind of fed off it for years to come. Again, I think we can learn from their example. What's the thing which encourages me most about St. Luke's as the vicar? I think, to be honest, it's the very simple thing. It's when people turn up. And we often say at the front, don't we, it's great to see you. We really do mean that. And one of the, one of the, the, the hard things about the past year when we've been meeting online is just not having that sense of turning up together. Hasn't it been? Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll admit to a partly human weakness in this, in wanting to see people in church and to have a sense that things are going well. And that's partly my problem. But at the same time, there's a better reason, which is just that I think there's nothing which says more about our commitment to being part of Jesus' body and his people than just being here together. And it's such an encouragement to look around each week and, and see faces who I see pretty much every week, you know, unless someone is ill or on holiday, and think, yes, we are the family and we are committed to one another. It's brilliant. doesn't go unnoticed. Uh, as one writer put it, Eutychus was committed to being with the right people at the right time, doing the right thing. So as preachers, yes, we need to do our best to preach interesting sermons. Um, that is our job. And I would say I'm sorry for the times when I've not done that, because I'm well aware that some weeks I do better than others. 
Um, there's actually a book about how to preach well with the title Saving Eutychus. The subtitle is How to Keep God's Work and Keep People Awake. As preachers, we need to hear that, don't we? And we need to be challenged. And as believers, we need to be committed to meeting together and making the most of every opportunity to be encouraged uh, and to encourage others. Uh, but of course, it wasn't just Paul's insight that they would remember from that night, was it? Not in the least. Um, they could hardly forget what happened to Eutychus, who it seems Paul raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit. Uh, now, of course, this is something that Jesus did several times in his ministry. And it's probably significant that both Peter and Paul in the book of Acts raised people from the dead. Peter, who became known as the Apostle to the Jews, and Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, um, doing what Jesus did as, almost as a kind of divine validation that these are the people who've been given this task of speaking on Jesus' behalf. You can look back at Acts chapter 9 to see what Peter did later on if you want to. And so these transition verses, they might be kind of in-between verses in one way, but they're full of encouragement for us as we see the example of the commitment, of the sensitivity to the Spirit and his guiding of these first Christians, of Paul and his colleagues, and the commitment of those in Troas to just being together and making the most of every opportunity to grow through the Word of God. And then in verses 13 to 16, we're again reminded that Paul's desire is to get to Jerusalem, and so they head off down the coast, where next week we will find him meeting with the leaders of the church in Ephesus. Let's pray. <laughs> Father God, we thank you that as we meet on this Lord's Day, that you are with us by your Spirit, just as you were in Troas that day nearly 2,000 years ago. Thank you that you have called us not just to be believers, but to be a body, a body of Christ. That you've brought us together to encourage one another so that we might grow and care for one another and learn to love you more. And so, Lord, we pray for our church. We pray that you would help us to have good plans and the sensitivity to hear your voice when you are teaching us to change them. And Lord, we commit these things into your hands now. In Jesus' name.